warm welcome to our Thursdays with David Foster Wallace series where we every week read a section of the infamous Infinite Jest with the hope, of course, of finishing the book by the end of the year. Today's section is pages 380 to 418 in the 20th anniversary Back Bay Books edition of the text published by Little Brown and Company. A quick announcement before we get into the text, I'm going to update the glossary slash vocabulary list on our website in relation to this text about every third episode from now on, so before the next episode we should be caught up in terms of our vocabulary list if you do find that resource quite helpful or follow along with it. This whole episode today is going to cover only a portion of a new chapter on the 8th of November, YDAU, Gaudiamus Igator, starting on page 380. It's quite a long section, and it's a really, really interesting one, so I'm excited to get into our discussion today. Gaudiamus Igator to start means, so let us rejoice. It's played oftentimes at European high school and college graduations. Think of it like an accompaniment or a friend of the alma mater song that is played um, and very famous indeed for college graduations. And it's quite fitting actually this title for the occasion of Interdependence Day and also the occasion of Mario and Condensa's film showing, which happens every year at ETA. It seems like it's a big celebration of sorts. It's so big, in fact, that a lot of the Canadian students at ETA feel a bit isolated, a bit out of place while everyone else is celebrating. We walk in on a scene in this chapter where everyone is celebrating, of course, Interdependence Day at ETA. They're in um, sort of this cafeteria-like great room. And they are watching the film, they are eating real desserts, which is a real treat because they have a chef in the kitchen who used to be a pastry chef, so she can use her skills from her past career to their fullest and um, not have to worry. Indeed, it's often the case that kids at boarding school, especially special boarding schools, are restricted in terms of their sugar intake. I experienced this when I went to music boarding school. We weren't allowed to have cereal after breakfast, no sodas, no nothing, so I definitely understand the sugar deprivation that a lot of these kids are experiencing. Um, and as well, they wear hats as a tradition at CTA, at, at ETA rather. Um, we know that the injured kids from the game of Estraton are MIA, so they're not present at this gathering, and we are sort of awaiting a big buddy punishment, group punishment. Avril seems to know about the fatal game of Estraton, but CT is yet unaware, and that's something that's really interesting and suspenseful right at the beginning here of this chapter. And footnote 148, we get a description of all of the hats that people are wearing. And I really like this footnote because it places the reader spatially in the room really well. This gets into the idea of fiction as escapism a little bit. Um, in terms of, it's just such a realistic description. I think this book is in a lot of ways a microcosm of the world. I think this book, more and more, the more I think about it, the more I get into it, the more I think that it's one of the most accurate descriptions of real life that I've ever read. Um, I quite enjoy 
losing myself in it and um, being able to dig really deep in, into what DFW is trying to say. And um, yeah, it's just an interesting conversation of audience and what this book is really for. You know, why did DFW write it other than for pure entertainment? Uh, so we learn a lot about the political scene, the political situation of the text from Mario's film, but the problem with this section is it's very complicated. There's a lot of different moving parts, so I want to just start out by saying that we must always be grounded in this text. We must always be aware of what frames we're working with here. So there's the outer frame, um, and if you're familiar with um, romantic frame narration. This is perfect for you. Um, so we start out with this outer frame of Mario's film showing at ETA. This is the frame where everyone's wearing hats. And we get inner frames throughout the chapter, the section here, and the inner frames are what are confusing. And so we, even though we learn a lot about the political situation and we get a lot of transcripts and news headers and things of this nature, we have to always remember that these are coming from the context of this outer frame. And so we can't ever get lost in these little intermediate sections, these little transitionary, digressionary sections within the text. I think this is really, really important. So the film itself is a parody of a film that Dr. Incanzenza did himself about the same topics, about politics, about Johnny Gentle, the new president of the U.S. And what's interesting about this film, notably, is that there's both real news and fake news <laughs> rampant in the entire thing. So when you, especially when the, you get to this um, section, and the, there are just pages of news titles um, headers and subheaders that um, Mario seems to show, and they're written out in the text for us in a really cool way that we'll get to later, but we never know if this information is legitimate or false, and I think that's something that's very postmodern about this section. We'll be talking a lot about postmodernism today. Um, so, in terms of the politics, there's this party called the Clean U.S. Party that's headed by crooner Johnny Gentle. Um, a crooner, by the way, is someone like Pat Boone. You can Google him if you really want to. Um, and there's really, in this America, there's no common enemy to rally against. There's so many changes and challenges um, in this new America, and one of them is the environment. Um, and so the clean U.S. party headed by Gentle um, sort of, it's described as uniting or unifying um, the far right of the current political system and the far left. Um, so almost like some candidates in the current day, actually. And interestingly, the party started out as this sort of Perot factor um, kind of party. So it was on the fringes at first. Um, if you study politics, you know Ross Perot from 1992, the election. He had a big impact. Um, even though he didn't win the election, he did influence the results quite a bit with his party. So yeah, this clean U.S. party starts out very small, very liberal, sort of like the Green Party today in the U.S., 
and it becomes super big because America splits finally at these ideological philosophical fault lines that are in our politics even today um, and it's just because there's no common enemy in this fictional account of America so America looks within itself for the common enemy and the clean US party takes power um, and gentle wins the presidency um, I think in a lot of ways, DFW has really keen insights into American politics. You know, I don't want to make this discussion political at all. Um, you guys are probably, if you've been longtime listeners, confused about my political affiliations. Maybe we'll get into that in a different episode. But yeah, I think he really talks a lot about semblances of our greatest presidents. So people like Reagan and Lincoln, um, who are really... Um, iconic in terms of the American presidential sphere, um, what we think about when we think about presidential history, and also the modern notion of performativity in politics and indeed in the public sphere as a whole. I think that his DFW's account is also highly predictive um, and in that way his observations are quite astute. Um, it's just there's so much in this text that rings familiar, even though we're in a completely different time um, than when DFW wrote this book. I also want to note that um, in the film, in Mario Incandenza's film, um, he uses puppets throughout it, which I think is really interesting because it works in in two ways, rather dually, in that we have these puppets which ground us throughout the frame. Because there's so much shifting around and so much digressing that he does, I think the puppets are a really cool way to bring us back to center within the text. Every time they're mentioned, we know. Right, that's right, we're talking about Mario's film again. Um, and the other thing is that it's sort of an insight into, again, this performativity and this notion of um, the world being a stage and the world being a play in, um, in politics. So another really important big section is Lyle. So this is sort of the inner frame in it. So this is all occurring while the celebrations and festivities for Interdependence Day are occurring, if they're co-occurring, if you will. Um, so I love Lyle. I talked about this last time. I love him because he just adds the right amount of postmodern flair to the novel. He's clearly not as important as a character like Joel or Dr. Incandenza, Hal, or Avril, so it doesn't really matter that we only get snippets of him, but I just love that he gives us this breath of fresh air, this reminder that really Infinite Jest is made as a tip of the hat to postmodernism. It's highly influenced by postmodernism. Many people would say actually that it's a postmodern text. Not sure what I think about that yet. We'll see in later episodes, but there's so much, um, so many elements in this book that are just postmodern, at least in my opinion. Um, and yeah, this book is just so rooted in postmodernism. Again, my opinion here, but yeah, that's what I love about Lyle and about a lot of the aspects of this book. So we get all of these little conversations and little episodes with Lyle. Um, the first is Lyle is remembering a student called Marlin and he has this sweating problem. As we know, Lyle seems to feed off of um, the player's sweat 
in the workout room, he sits on top of the towel dispenser there, and he just licks sweat off of people, and that's his guru-like enlightenment state, is living off of sweat. So it's interesting that he's confronted with this character that's constantly um, allowing Lyle to partake in, you know, his guru-like meals, I suppose. Yeah, and um, Marlin joins sports because he's so sweaty. This is, again, something that's really postmodern. It just has that feeling of postmodernism. Um, and this is important to me, at least in terms of Lyle's character, because it tells us that Lyle's memory um, is multisensory. It's very governed by especially taste, and he talks a lot about the taste of different people's sweat during this. I know it might be gross for some of you, so I'm sorry. I should have maybe done a little trigger warning, but yeah, this is something that I really think is interesting about Lyle, something quite odd indeed. The next little episode we get from him is um, Lamont Chu. This is a character that we have already seen in the text um, several times, actually. And Lamont Chu has an obsession with fame and being in the show, being one day in magazines and things of this nature. Um, and I think this is a really key insight through this character to DFW's observations about the Asian American experience of especially Asian Americans who want to be, quote, model minorities. I think it captures the culture, or at least the stereotypes, very well. Um, I'm half Asian myself, so it's really interesting to me to encounter these characters that face some of the same um, cultural stereotypes that I grew up with. I think there's also this notion of guilt and wanting to be um, wanting to make up for you being in a good position, whether that be socially, culturally, financially. Um, I think Lamont Shu is acting on some cultural guilt of some sort. You guys can let me know in the comments what you think about that. And this whole section is on page 388 if you want to reference it in your comments. Um, I also want to just say that Lamont Chu um, and Lyle's conversation can be summarized very easily by something that I came across after reading Amanda Knox's uh, autobiography. So actually, Lady Gaga tweeted recently, fame is prison. And um, Amanda Knox tweeted back at Lady Gaga, prison is prison. And that's sort of... That's, you know, funnily enough, and sim it's very simple, it's a very simple um, replacement or example for this, but I think that Lyle sort of tells Lamont to look, um, prison is prison and fame is prison. Um, and Lamont Chu is sort of still stuck and still grappling with these ideas of fame and the envy of fame, even after their conversation ends in the novel. I love the prose of this whole episodic um, section of the book with Lyle. I love the way that DFW weaves in and out of the Interde Interdependence Day festivities. There's a storm going on while Lyle is meeting with these people and remembering these people. There's all these students shuffling in and out secretly to the locked weight room as it's dark and they've just showered and... Um, I just, yeah, it's so ornate, so I love the way that 
um, the frames interact in this passage. It's just, it, to me, it's just so beautiful. And then also, I came across a term that I had no idea what it was. It's a CFDC, it's an acronym. And I love Lyle so much <laughs> that I actually searched the internet for the answer to what that is. It's a caffeine-free Diet Coke, if you're wondering. And I learned this on the, the Wikipedia page for Infinite Jest. And it actually goes through page by page of this novel um, of what, um, you know, what terms are on it and um, where we have seen previous threads or... Um, different scenarios. So I'm going to link that in the description for y'all if you also come across a term that for some reason you really care about it and you want to look it up or understand it. So here we get to the news headers. I think what's interesting um, about this book as a whole is that you can get into the book as much or as little as you want. Yeah, I have a journal for this book um, that is almost full, actually. Um, two bookmarks, you know, I'm reading the footnotes very extensively, I'm reading things very slowly and carefully, um, but I'm not at the level of like a Harry Potter fandom, for example. I've never read Harry Potter. I know people hate this about me. It's like saying that you're not a dog person or something. People just are astounded that you're even alive. Um, I'm not a dog person either, I'm sorry. But yeah, uh, I digress. Um, I really think that some people really get into the book, um, which is really cool to see. There's so much information on this book out there. So if you want to get really into the book, you totally can. Um, and I would just say, at the same time, be careful about the sources that you're reading. I mean, a lot of people disagree about very key components of the book, such as the narrator or um, the way that the frames are organized, certain character traits, things of this nature. So, um, you know, take everything with a grain of salt, and I think that this book is really your playground when it, when it comes to what you want to get into. I think the news headers is, um, this section is a really great example of that. You could actually research all of the legitimate factual findings behind all these news headers at your leisure. Um, I didn't. Uh, I know there's a lot about NATO that I still don't understand and would like to get into maybe in a later episode, but um, I think, again, that the news headers are something that you could actually sift through and distinguish, okay, what's real news and what's fake news in terms of the scope of the novel. We also, in this discussion of politics, get into a theme of cleanliness. Um, this new president, Johnny De Gentle, um, he, he really um, is obsessed with being clean. He wears a face mask, gloves, he makes people at his pres presidential inauguration go through foot baths to clean themselves, and this goes into the the theme and the idea of environmentalism in the novel, and this sort of notion that environmentalism has won in, in politics, finally. Um, he has this, had this group of people that he employs to clean, um, which really remind me actually of the White Ducks in New York in um, the early 1900s, I want to say, when they first were looking at sanitation and cleaning up the city. Um, what's interesting is that 
in the presidency of Johnny Gentle, Onan is created, so this um, alliance between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, where U.S. is the dominant power, and there's sort of this co-secretary situation with Canada and Mexico, so the territories are combined, and Johnny Gentle, or rather his, um, the person who's controlling him, again back to the idea of puppets, um, they decide to allocate parts of the former U.S. territory um, to these toxic wastelands, so they're, it's just ruined land, land that we've ruined and destroyed and can no longer live on, and interestingly enough, they give the territory to Canada, so actually it's sort of a, an anti-territorial dispute where the U.S. instead of acquiring territory as is common for um, any country actually up until the present day, um, the pursuit of wanting to add more territory, we are actually pursuing to give away territory in this case. And then I also wanted to, to mention the question of is Johnny Gentle crazy? And I'm not sure, actually. I have no idea. I think we don't have enough information for that, especially considering that a lot of Mario Incandenza's film is or could be fake news. So I think, especially from the headlines that we get this notion from, we're not really sure how, the, how grounded they are, you know, how much fact are in them. But that's okay. We have much of the book to get through in order to discover that. Um, next, we have another visit to Lyle, another episode by O. Stice. This is the guy that wears all black um, and is really good. He's sort of like a mini John Wayne in, in some senses. Um, and he has a problem where his bed moves across the room at night while he's sleeping and he's had problems with his roommate because it, he thinks that his roommate is messing with him and the roommate goes to the infirmary a couple nights in a row and he discovers that the bed is still moving. So it's this interesting, interesting conversation about um, almost a deification of objects. Um, and Lyle gives an example of someone who he knew who was able to levitate chairs, um, and he was a street performer. So very interesting. I'm not sure where this might go, but I'm interested to find out where we will hear of Ostice next. Um, we also learn that Hal has pretty intense sugar and nicotine addictions. This is not surprising from earlier in the novel, especially considering um, Hal's behavior during the Estraton match, his sort of detached behavior, especially as he's interacting with weed. And then we get this really interesting conversation from a film by Dr. Incandenza called Medusa versus Odalisque. Um, and Dr. Incandenza, in his film, it's mentioned, and his in his filmic career, actually, it's mentioned that he's obsessed with this notion of audience. Um, and I think, actually, interestingly, the book is also, the book Infinite Jest is also audience-obsessed in a lot of ways. I think this is a really cool meta point of this section. And I think that the fact that Dr. Incandenza is audience-obsessed, and so is Infinite Jest, the book, in some ways. Um, I think that's further proof of Dr. Incandenza's being the narrator of the novel. I want to know what you guys think about this point, though. Am I going too far here? Let me know in the comments. So, there is a lot of deviation, as I've already mentioned, within this outer frame. We have this other, um, 
episode sort of it's with it's very close to the outer frame so in other words it drives directly from the scene with Mario and Condensa's film um, and there's this there's this tennis player named Eric Clipperton and he has this gun and uh, his whole shtick is that he plays tennis one-handed with the gun at one temple and he threatens to commit suicide if he loses a tennis match. So essentially what happens is that he dominates the tennis game um, and he really is able to win huge tournaments because of this emotional and psychological trauma that he gives his competitors. So it's not that he's good at tennis, it's that he psychologically manipulates his competitors into letting him win because of this very obvious gun that he has in his hand. And it says page 408, and my plug here for the rest of the show the podcast classic version, is that um, the case that he holds the gun in is inscribed with German Gothic script. And we actually did an episode on German Gothic script, like, really recently, a couple weeks ago. So that episode's linked in the description if you're at all interested in this really strange and random connection in Infinite Jest to our actual programming. So... We also learn, interestingly, in this section that Incondenza, Dr. Incondenza, that is, is buried in Quebec. And so, I don't know, again, if this is too far as well, but I sort of made a connection between this reallocation of U.S. territory, territory that's been destroyed by chemical and toxic waste um, to Canada, and the maker of Infinite Jest, the ultimate film, court, film cartridge for entertainment, um the allocation of this person's body to Canada as well. Um, there are a lot of connections with Quebec, and of course we don't have all the pieces quite yet. We know that Avril is from Quebec, so that might play some parts into it. But I find it interesting that um, this really amazing asset to some American groups at this stage in the politics and at this stage in the time frame of the novel um, is buried in Canada and also that all of this land has suddenly been given to Canada. So I'm not sure if this is going to be a theme later in the book or what. You can let me know if you have any ideas in the comments, but yeah, I've just, I've just found it an interesting parallel here. So advertising. The last couple pages here are all about advertising, the evolution of advertising in the novel. So we have this first product called Nunhagen Aspirin, that's my German pronunciation, um, at least, um, insights here from Hal's seventh grade paper. Again, we know that we have a previous paper of Hal's in the footnotes actually from seventh grade. It's just beautifully written, um, and yeah, and we have this second sort of parallel paper, which I find interesting because it's alluded to very heavily, but not explicitly quoted really um, in the text. Uh, so yeah, he talks about how the aspirin has, has these really disturbing commercials that make you want to take the aspirin. So people feel quite negatively about the commercials themselves, but they feel quite positively about the product. And... It's the same thing with this tongue scraper, and again, there's this notion of 
cleanliness. So the tongue scraper is one of these objects that becomes emblematic in this America. People always have them. They're always in a certain year that Hal mentions always in line for the toilet and the mirror so that they can scrape their tongues. And this is another example of a hated advert but a loved product in this changing nature of advertisements. Um, on page 14, we have a quote that the goal was, quote, to create an anxiety relievable by purchase. And I think this is um, a really great quote from the text. I think this is super, this makes advertisement and product placement super clear within the text. Um, it gives us a really cool idea um, of our working definition for successful advertising. So yeah, this is really what the tongue scraper campaign hits at, is that they create this anxiety relievable by the purchase of the tongue scraper. Um, we also hear that this big four, there are four companies, the big four as they're referred to in the text, um, they are all broadcasting companies and they're all bankrupted by these negative ads. People hate the ads so much that they're actually systematically bankrupting the broadcasting companies and those four broadcasting companies, when they go bankrupt, they become eventually, through a lot of almost political gerrymandering, we'll talk about this in another episode, but um, those four become one and they turn into the Interlace Tell Entertainment um, company, which is sort of like Netflix actually, um, is the best I could describe it in modern terms. I think this is another really cool observation on DFW's end and prediction. Um, so yeah, we have these this big company and this is the company we've been hearing about all along so it's great background information for those of you who have been reading the text since the beginning dr i here is also involved in this sort of anti-advertisement um mentality he's very offbeat i mean he has this film called the joke where um the film is not pre-filmed like most films I would say that we encounter in our normal lives but rather this film is filmed while people are coming in and sitting down and essentially Dr. Incandenza and Mario during the showing of the joke would literally film the audience and let the audience watch themselves during this. I think this does play into an idea of um, something that you really <laughs> hate in terms of an advertisement, but then again, something that's also successful critically. My final question for you guys today is how does Infinite Jest, the actual cartridge, the filmic cartridge, fit into these conversations about cleanliness and advertising that we've been having in this episode? I think in some ways, the perfect form of entertainment is sort of this pure notion which goes back to cleanliness uh, and this also this good working definition of an advertisement, something that fulfills or satisfies an anxiety that we don't even know that we have for this yearning of the perfect entertainment. So let me know again what you guys think in the comments. Thank you so much for listening to another episode, and I will see you guys on Monday.
If you enjoyed the discussion and would like to hear more from us, there is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website, relevanceofliterature.com, under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalogue of episodes. We also have a couple of open surveys that you can find through the links in the description, so if you have three minutes while you're waiting in line somewhere, we would very much appreciate your feedback on our show. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode, and we'll see you next time.